You are listening to the GMO Truth Podcast, straight out of the Walk a Mile Project, brought to you by nonprofit film company Change the World Films. Tune in here to discover the truth and change the world together. Hello again, everyone. Eric Battersby from Change the World Films, delivering GMO Truth Podcast episode number 11, right here, right now. We have way too much to cover in one podcast today, so I'm going to jump in super quickly. Only two ultra-fast pre-show items on the agenda here. Number one, if you haven't listened to my guest appearance on The Shalene Show, I put a link to it right here on the podcast page. It's also on our Facebook page and our Twitter, or you can just search for The Shalene Show on iTunes. That's C-H-A-L-E-N-E which of course refers to the show's host, the one and only Shalene Johnson. You've probably seen Shalene before. She currently holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the most fitness videos. She's also a New York Times bestselling author, and Huffington Post recognized her as one of the top 50 female entrepreneurs to watch in 2017. Shalene's been digging into the GMO controversy herself after running into some health issues, and I hope you'll give the interview a listen because you'll get some insight there as to what's coming up next before we even reveal it here at Walk a Mile, something I'm, I'm sure you'll appreciate. It, it was a really good interview, and big, big thanks to Shalene for reaching out to me and making it happen. Okay, only other thing before we get into it, and only because of how fast things are moving right now at the Walk a Mile Project, this is extremely important. Please, please, please click the subscribe button in iTunes or on our website if you aren't already a subscriber to the podcast, and please rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help immensely. If you have a couple of minutes to spare, writing a short review is even better, but please at least take just a moment to rate us and subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode, and you'll help us keep climbing up the iTunes charts, which helps more and more people find the GMO truth. Believe me, it makes a huge difference. In fact, earlier this week, we climbed into the top 30 overall for video podcasts, and we hit top 5 in the health category because we got a lot of listens and some great 5-star ratings and reviews all in a row. Know that you are doing your own little part to change the world just by subscribing or rating, so thank you. Okay, you rock, and we appreciate it. Now let's jump back into the craziness with Monsanto, glyphosate, and in particular, glyphosate's 1991 EPA review. This is basically the sequel to podcast number seven, so you might want to give that show a listen as well. Ideally, you want to listen to number seven first before number 11 here, but it's all good either way. I think today's episode is an important step forward in our work on GMOs, and largely because it's one of the first times we're bringing you completely exclusive information. Now, I will give you two sides to this story, both resulting from a little investigative work we did almost two years ago now. Our glyphosate research got pushed to the side for a whole bunch of different reasons, actually, but a few of the big reasons it's taken so long to get back on this topic is that our work in GMO labeling in late 2015 and then 2016 really took over. Then Monsanto came to town here in Arizona at the start of 2017, And then we had a huge breakthrough that required two film shoots this year as well. So all of our work on glyphosate has been sitting on the back burner quite a while, which of course was never the plan. Having said that, however, it actually looks like now is a great time for us to get this information out there, especially in light of what's happening in San Francisco with a big lawsuit against Monsanto claiming that Roundup gave people cancer. It's crazy, but the mouth study that we reviewed back on podcast number seven and that we'll talk about again today is being reopened, forced open, if you will as a new pathologist employed by lawyers for the cancer victims in that trial, we'll we'll get a look at those controversial tissue slides we're about to discuss again right now. Okay, so let's party like it's 1991. For those of you watching the video podcast, what's on screen right now is the sign-off page from the EPA's second peer review of glyphosate on June 26, 1991. I've highlighted three signature lines which show three individuals who refused to sign off on this peer review. 
Richard Hill, Gene Parker, and Robert Belisles. Now, back in the summer of 2015, I did my best to track down at least one of these three people who refused to sign off on glyphosate. And with a little bit of luck and perseverance, I found my way to Gene Parker, the second name on that list. Eventually, Gene and I talked on the phone, and the end result was that she sent me this exact statement on what she felt happened back in 1991. I will read it to you now. You might want to be sitting down for this, as this is a Walk a Mile Project exclusive that no one has uncovered before, and you are hearing it first right now. Here is Gene Parker's statement. At the time of the 1991 review, I was the branch chief of the Carcinogen Assessment Toxicology Branch, Office of Health and Environmental Assessment, and the Office of Research and Development. I was also a member of the Office of Pesticide Program's in-house review panel for conducting reviews of cancer data for the program office, although I was not an employee of the pesticides program. I reviewed the available carcinogenicity data and related information on glyphosate provided to the pesticide review group. You indicated that I was absent from the meeting, but did not concur with the majority of the review group members who concluded that glyphosate should be categorized as a Class E chemical, i.e. a chemical for which the data indicated evidence of non-carcinogenicity. It is possible that the group reviewed the data over more than one meeting period and voted on the classification at the end of the final meeting. However, I do not remember such details as this was a long time ago. I do remember reviewing the available data for glyphosate, and I do remember that I definitely did not agree with the classification of E. I would have categorized glyphosate as a Group C possible human carcinogen based on the data available at that time. Group C chemicals, agents with limited evidence of carcinogenicity in animals, included those agents having, for example, tumor responses of marginal statistical significance in studies having inadequate design or reporting, and or responses of marginal statistical significance in a tissue known to have a high or variable background rate. To my way of thinking, glyphosate clearly met these criteria and should have been classified as a Group C. Each tumor finding by itself was not an earth-shattering observation. However, there were positive findings and when taken together, there was absolutely no way that I could understand placing glyphosate into Group E, evidence of non-carcinogenicity. Nor did glyphosate belong in Group D. As you are aware, there were findings of tumors in both mice and rats. The renal tumors observed in the mice were a relatively rare tumor in that strain or species. I remember that at some point after the pesticide review of glyphosate in the 80s, a pathologist reviewing the tissue slides observed an adenoma in a control mouse which did away with the statistical significance of the finding looking at pairwise comparisons. The renal tumors still were, however, a finding indicating carcinogenicity. They were rare tumors and the tumors in the treated animals progressed to malignancy. Even though there was not a clear dose response, the renal tumors in the mice were a positive trend. Increased incidences of tumors were also observed in rats exposed to glyphosate. For example, Statistically significant increases in islet cell tumors were observed in both sexes of rats. Here, I must comment that the statistical tests applied could result in different conclusions regarding statistical significance depending upon the tests used and on the controls used. The trend test would give different results from pairwise comparisons, for example. I will also mention that the most appropriate control group is the one used in the actual study. Historical controls from the same lab would be reasonable but not quite as good. Pooled controls from several labs which may originate from different suppliers or breeders, may not necessarily be as suitable for comparison. I will attempt to go back and bring up the file if possible, but I believe after glancing at it the other day, there were also thyroid C-cell tumors in rats and hepatocellular adenomas. Although these were adenomas, they were significant. Claiming that the increased tumor incidences were not related to exposure to glyphosate is not a conclusion I could have agreed with. It just doesn't make sense. 
and claiming the evidence available at that time supports classifying glyphosate as a group E chemical, i.e. one for which there is evidence for non-carcinogenicity, is ridiculous. Okay, I then asked Jean if she experienced or heard of anyone else experiencing any pressure for concurrence, either internally or externally from the EPA, political sources, Monsanto, etc., any pressure being exerted on any of the EPA members associated with this review. Here was her response. To the best of my knowledge, I am unaware of any pressure, either internal or external, on peer review group members to concur with classifying glyphosate as a category E chemical. I could speculate that the person presenting the summary of the data at the meeting might have done so in such a way as to influence attendees by looking at each finding separately and discarding it, rather than eventually summarizing the overall database by looking at the weight of the evidence. Each peer review group member, however, should have reviewed and assessed the data for himself beforehand. And again, how the statistics were presented would have resulted in findings being significant or not. Okay, that was Gene Parker's written statement on glyphosate approval in 1991. Everyone, take a deep breath. We're only through one side of the equation here. So before you hit the pause button and run out and tell everyone how terrible the EPA is and how they epically dropped the ball on glyphosate, we all need to take the time to listen to, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. And most importantly, the GMO truth that follows. I talked with two people at the EPA, not just one, and they both spoke with candor and pulled no punches, and I'm very grateful that we got an inside look at what happened back in 1991. Jean is far removed from her EPA days now. She was difficult to track down, and we, we never were able to schedule a phone interview. I just have her written statements. The majority of this podcast, however, is actually an excerpt from a very long phone interview I did with another former EPA employee, Penny Fenner Crisp, whose name appears at the very top of the glyphosate review signature sheet. Believe me, I understand that all of us who have started to see the seriousness of the GMO controversy come to light will tend to jump on the Gene Parker statement I just put out there and only run with that side of this story. And I will unequivocally tell you I think that's a mistake to do because there's a lot more to talk about here, including things that I'm concerned neither Penny nor Gene knew about at the time, not the least of which is how much glyphosate was about to take over the world. You'll understand all of it much better at the end of these two podcasts. If you just jump on one side of the story up front here, however, you'll only be contributing to the toxic atmosphere that has let this controversy rage on for over two decades now. Remember, we're here to resolve the controversy, so stay with me to the end. Let's finish walking the mile here to get a better gauge on exactly what the heck happened with the EPA's initial glyphosate review back in 1991. There is a ton to cover. So without further ado, here's my interview with retired EPA employee Penny Fenner Crisp. So I'm talking with uh, Penny Fenner Crisp, who used to work at the EPA for many years and uh, is one of the people who signed off on the review document in question for glyphosate. And uh, Penny, can you just say again what your role was at the EPA back in 1991? At the time that the glyphosate review occurred, I was the director of the health effects division in the Office of Pesticide Programs. And that division had responsibility for doing all the human health risk assessment for what were called conventional chemical pesticides. So for this, for this document that we're talking about today, it's hard to remember 24 years back specifically. But what, what I'm really curious about is you know, a concrete opinion from someone that did sign off on how they felt about, about the Category E that it received that day. Since it originally started at Category C, and at the time was a Category D when this meeting had taken place. So is there any insight? You, you, I know it's a long time, <laughs> but is there any insight you can provide on how that, went from, how that meeting went and how it went from a D to an E that day? Well, 
the old category D was ascribed to chemicals for which you weren't quite sure about anything yet or there was insufficient information. Probably had been a C to begin with because there were some marginal increases in certain kinds of tumors that weren't particularly in adenomas as opposed to carcinomas, but then they don't metastasize, so they, they tend to be given a little less weight than the carcinomas. But I think probably what happened as we talked about it further was that there was more heavy attention given to the statistics and probably a more useful input from the pathologist, uh, where the Luke Brennicke and the statistician Hugh Pettigrew on how statistically significant the appearance of any of these tumor types were. And as I read the summary in the registration, re-registration eligibility document, while there were some increased incidences of certain kinds of tumors, for the most part, they were not statistically significant. Or when they occurred, they were within what we call historical values. Statistics are done in two ways. You look at the single study in isolation and try to determine if you see a statistical significance. But you also look at it in the context of what else has that laboratory done in terms of running studies and what kind of historical incidence of that kind of tumor type occurs in untreated animals. And as you might expect, over time you get a range of generally not zero. These things happen spontaneously and one has to take that into consideration. So I suspect that what was done here to finish the review and make it final was a more in-depth statistical analysis was done within the study and against the historical incidence of those tumors in the laboratory that ran these studies. And because of that, they became less important because they fell within the historical range. For this final study here, for the rat study, I, I haven't looked into the to the figures yet for the historical controls. I know that for the mouse study, which is the one that resulted in the Category C initially, I thoroughly went through everything with the mouse studies. We have already done a podcast on that, and, and the historical control data that Monsanto kept trying to submit was constantly being rejected. In fact, the same data got rejected twice, and then they, they submitted new data that was completely rejected because it was incomplete. And they weren't having a lot of luck trying to use historical controls as, as, as any kind of evidence against the mouse study. What it seems like changed the mouse study around was that they said there was a tumor in one of the control mice that didn't originally appear, but that tumor was in dispute you know, from people within, you know, within the group here that we're talking. Some, some people yeah. thought it was a tumor, some people thought it wasn't. Oh yeah, I see that the kidney slides were re-examined one pathologist diagnosed an additional kidney tumor. So it's a little disc. Is a, someone who's reading this hoping that the right call has been made and that everything's safe? Read some of this stuff is a little disconcerting, <laughs> as you can imagine. Yeah. So, but that study, you know, there's still only three mice that showed showed the tumors, and I guess I followed along pretty well and understood what was going on. But this last one has me pretty puzzled. I mean, I understand what you're saying with with how they looked at it, but when you look at the data, it just seems really strange that anything in this rat study could could point to a category E. I mean, a lot of this study, the rat study, feels like the data is kind of all over the place when you look between controls and the different dose groups. And I think there were two, there were two rat studies. Well, I'm looking at 
being a two rat study. The second, the first rat study was the one they were essentially redoing, uh, and that's what what's noted in this document here. Okay, just one quick interjection here. After making sure we were on the same page, literally, Penny and I then looked through the summary data from the studies together, and that's where we're at now in the interview. Pancreas adenomas only at a very high dose, the ending of the first one. Thyroid committee's interpretation, although adenomas slightly exceeded the historical control range, there was no statistically significant trend or pairwise comparison. So that means not, not statistically significant. So they weren't considered compound related. Slight dose related increase in livers in males, but oh, here's the controversy you're talking about. Incidence was within the range of historical controls from their lab. So that, I guess, they finally convinced us. See that that one? How did they dismiss the uh, table five for the adenomas, where where the higher controls both have double digit percentages of of the adenomas? In table five, the controls are zero and two. There are only two adenomas out of fifty seven. Is looking at the bottom line, the hyperplasia? No, I was looking at adenomas. Then mine says adenomas are two, two, six, and six. Right across across the doses. Yeah, but interestingly, not statistically significant. P-value is 0.15, roughly, and 0.12. Got to get it below 0.05. So while while it looks like it might matter, statistically it didn't. And does the P equal the pairwise, mean stand for pairwise? Yes. If, if, if you look at this thing, take anyone, take the carcinoma one across, see the P, P equals... Under the control number, the zero, you have carcinoma zero out of 57 and percentage is zero, and then underneath is the 0.445. That's the statistics from using the trend method, whether or not there's a trend towards an increase. But then when you look at the p-values under the 2,000, the 8,000, and 20,000, those are the pairwise comparisons. And those pairwise, you, those pairwise comparisons have to be under 0.05 to be considered statistically significant, yes. See, see the note under the bottom of that table? Yes, that's right. The significance of trends denoted at control, so that would be for the carcinoma, the 0.445. And the significance of pairwise comparison with the control are under all the dose levels. If P is less than 0 0.05, then it's considered statistically significant. So, do you know the equation for evaluating that? Like, how do they how do they get those numbers for the for the p value? There are mathematical formulas for those two trend tests, statistical trend tests. And do you know what data they they go off of to pull the, you know the plugs into the plugs into the formula? Yes, they would take the individual data that you see summarized in this table. So that, that p-value is something we could calculate on our own just by looking at the data here, you mean? Yes. Okay. I always let my statisticians do that. <laughs> okay, so you're saying... It was, it was nice being the boss. <laughs> and he gave this, oh, please run me, rerun the statistics and do this and this, as opposed to my having to do this. So I didn't have to do that after I finished my dissertation. But if you look at the uh, results, for all of the data, for all three 
three doses in both carcinomas and adenomas, it never met the statistical significant test. And I, I think when I spoke with Jean, what she was saying was that there are multiple ways of looking at data. And when you just look, her concern was that there was a bigger picture that was being ignored when you looked across studies. As, as you might imagine, there are and have been some minor to major philosophical differences <laughs> across programs in the agency, which is another whole documentary, quite frankly. <laughs> okay, duly noted. The general practice when running statistics for any kind of data set is to do trend analysis and pairwise comparison. I mean, this is not, not just for cancer bioassays, but for other kinds of studies as well. They're generally the, the two statistical choices that are made. However, you know, as a matter of course, standard practice. However, there are circumstances where other kinds of statistics are applied, but generally not too often. My guess, knowing Jean, I did know her pretty well, uh, and her office. Her, her sense was probably more a qualitative reaction than a quantitative one. Uh, as, as we've talked about here, there's, there's a little bit of something in the first rent study. There was a little bit of something in the second rent study. There was a little bit of something in the mouse study. And even though most of them didn't achieve statistical significance or you could provide other rationales for minimizing their importance, she probably saw them as, oh, there is something here that's important. He added all together and the statistics mattered less. Okay, well, I, I suppose the other thing I, I wanted to make sure or just check in on was when you read through some of this and when you see the numbers, and granted, I, I, I saw the pairwise comparison part on there. I'm not as f familiar with how that's gauged. I mean, it's pretty clear to look at something and see that the control numbers are way lower than, than the higher dose groups and be concerned as a layman looking at a study. From researching all of this as I have and researching into, into Monsanto and, and the, how glyphosate kind of had a meteoric rise here and everything, I guess my concern was just that it, what I was worried about from that day was, was there any outside pressure? Was someone, was someone putting pressure on the agency to make sure this got classified as Category E? Because when I went through it, just trying to figure out how something got categorized as E, that's the part that shocked me. Yeah. I, I assumed for Category E, you have to have pretty stringent uh, guidelines, whether you'll take something and, and basically declare it innocuous. Granted, most of the data in here doesn't show any carcinomas, and that was the one thing that I, that I was kind of unclear about. Like, there's a lot of adenomas that show up and hardly any carcinomas. Does that mean that's, that... Yeah, that's true, and that, and that does tend to lessen concern. With adenomas versus carcinomas, I mean, we're talking about something that could eventually develop into a carcinoma, I assume, when it's a tumor? In some cases, that is true. And the basic assumption, if you don't know for sure for your particular tumor toxin that you're evaluating, you make the assumption that that could happen. That's the health protective position, the policy position. Because one could cite examples where, in fact, an adenoma could transform into a carcinoma, and, and you have to assume for risk assessment purposes that that could happen. But that's a science policy decision that the agency has made. Okay. And that clears up why we were talking about carcinogenicity here when 
when everything I looked at seemed to be, not everything, but most of it through these studies seemed to be adenomas. But from yeah, well, you get, you get caught up in definitions again here where some people only define cancers as malignancies. I, I don't think any consumer that got a tumor would be real happy about having a tumor. <laughs> that, that's correct. I, I, I'm just making the point that some many cancer specialists in, in the area define cancer only as a malignant something. And, that adenomas may take up space, they often can, and could be life-threatening by virtue of their volume. But they claim they are not life-threatening by the fact they don't go anywhere. Okay. I'm not saying I ascribe to that, but that is often what one might hear from a cancer biologist when they're defining terms. Okay, understood. That makes sense. So on that meeting day, you, at any point did you experience any kind of outside pressure with any of this, or was this just business as usual? I never, in the course of running that division, felt any direct outside pressure from anybody. But that's because I'm kind of an ordinary soul. <laughs> if you if you were to talk to some of the regulatory folks from companies at that time, they would probably tell you I was a bit ornery. <laughs> so what you're saying is uh, that question, you're the wrong person to ask because they would never have tried that with you in the first place. By 1991, probably not. <laughs> I've been there a couple of years. And yes, they would come and talk to me. And I'd tell them to go back and do more work. Not necessarily on this one, but I have some other examples. I decided they hadn't been enough. Well, with any of these meetings, was did Monsanto ever make an appearance or anything like that? Were they ever present at the EPA, or is this all just going through the mail? They probably showed up, but they met with the regulators, the risk managers. And they, did, they didn't show up in the office so much. They'd show up in the office directors or in whoever was running the registration division at the time. Okay, so if, any, if anything, if there was any pressure coming from anywhere, that's where it would have come from. Right. Yeah, it was indirect. The registrants pretty much left us alone to do our work, and if they didn't like it, they'd go over our heads. <laughs> hey, what, if they didn't like the results of the work, you mean? If they didn't like the results of our assessments in the health effects division, they wouldn't necessarily come and beat up on me about it. They'd go to my boss. My boss. And, and then what happens after that? I don't remember ever changing anything. Oh, okay. You remember heated discussions, possibly, something along those lines, you mean, but nothing that ever resulted in a change? I don't remember ever going back down to my office from for many of those meetings saying, okay, guys, you remember what we what we signed off on here? We got to change it because we never did that. Okay. That's very good to hear. Now, I, I have to admit I lost some battles upstairs different from that when I, I would have preferred, we would have concluded that we didn't have all the information we would like to have before a regulatory decision was made, but it was made anyway. But that, that's exactly my question on this, because that's, to me, that's what it felt like when I read through this, all this data, because I went through this all, within a week, I went through all of this from start to finish, and... Uh, <laughs> Oh, you poor thing. I know. Really. It's funny because you try to, I'm on a podcast and I'm trying to communicate that to people and it's like, I don't think people realize how much my brain feels like mush right now, but, um. How would you like to have done it for a living? <laughs> I, I have much respect 
after going through all this and, and realizing kind of the weight that's on what you have to do I and mean, what you had to do, I, I, I definitely have respect for that now. And I didn't I'm, realize. I'm still mucking about in it a little bit in my supposed retirement. And in fact, uh, on, the, on the glyphosate story, because um, one of the things I also did during my tenure in the pesticide program was I was the U.S. rep on the WHO Joint Meeting Pesticide Residue, which is the partnership between WHO and FAO on establishing acceptable daily intake and uh, maximum residue levels. We call them tolerances in the U.S. For Codex Alimentarius, this is the effort that's done through WHO and FAO to help countries who don't have their own human resources to do this on their own, help them establish their regulatory limits for pesticides in food. So I did that for 10 years, I guess nine and a half years. There's a little bit behind the scenes going on with that between well, two parts of WHO right now because IARC has come out with the positions they did on glyphosate and the three other pesticides. There's a question whether or not the joint meeting on pesticide residues should revisit any of those chemicals sooner rather than later. And glyphosate is so unique in that it's... So you stick with this. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I didn't have to say it. <laughs> I'm not, you know, in researching this, it's, we've never seen a substance like it that's, at least in the pesticide realm, that has... And I don't, they don't even have the numbers in the last seven years out there, So I'm, which I'm assuming it's just gone up and up from... Mean production volume? The USDA does their pesticide. I, I know it's like more of an estimate, but when they do their... Um, they released their numbers on it, and it's like for a multiple year period. But the last time they did it, they released any numbers, I think, was 2008 or seven. I just did a, an infographic on how glyphosate kind of had this meteoric rise. There are some proprietary databases that EPA can look at but can't share the data from. When they, when they talk about production volume and use, they, they have to be very general in anything that they say. My guess would be... Atrazine and Alacar used to be the highest production conventional chemicals. Um, and I would guess glyphosate's probably up there with them pretty much now, too. Well, you're just talking from a sheer chemical standpoint, not, not as a pesticide specifically, right? No, as, a, as pesticides in terms of vo volume of use. Because glyphosate, uh, on the last set of numbers, it was, I think it was 180 million pounds in agriculture, specifically for agricultural use. That's what I was focusing on. Yeah, that's, what, that's that's where you get most of the data would be the agriculture use. So has, did it outstrip atrazine when you looked at it? Atrazine never crossed 80 million. So it was it was 100 million pounds more than atrazine ever was. Probably because, you know, of all the, the GMOs, the Roundup. Definitely. I was really focused on from when, you know, from 1996 and then really, in two, I think it was in 2001 where it took over. And then it just, from 2001 on, it just skyrocketed. Yeah, a before and after Roundup Ready kind of thing. When, you know, back when that glyphosate review was happening, was that even on the radar at that point that you're talking about a chemical that might wind up being so ubiquitous over time? And that, was it even there? No, because in 1991, the agencies, all three of them, hadn't even finished formulated their biotechnology policies, much less gotten any good sense 
it, we didn't, OBP didn't have a really good sense of what was going to land in his lap in terms of genetically modified crops that would have some characteristic of man managing pesticide exposure, whether it be internal or external. So the weight placed on this when you were talking about something which was a pretty low-use pesticide at the time. We were only thinking about it in, in terms of the old-fashioned conventional uses, right? Okay. And then by the time 1996 rolled around and they were gonna, they were launching this into the market as it is for Roundup Ready crops, they had already had the Category E classification in place and were just yep. basically running with that, right? Yep. So there, there never was a mandate to review it to say, hey, this is going to start being used differently and it could grow to be a lot, lot larger use. Maybe we should take a look at this again. No. So, um, as far as I can tell from the timing of all the documentation in the, in the record here, glyphosate has stayed on the conventional 15-year renewal cycle uh, the, Re-registration document and decision was made in 1993, and it was 2009 when the program put it back into uh, re-evaluation, so roughly the 15 years. Does it normally take years for the um, the reevaluation portion? Once it started, it will depend on what the agency finds when they do the preliminary screen. They'll go back and see, okay, we have this volume and these kinds of data on chemical X. It's time to look at it again. What have we got? Are there some things that weren't done back then that we now, as a matter of policy or because we see in the, the existing data some more concerns that we would have the company generate new data on? And the answer may be yes or maybe no, but that would be part of what goes on in the registration renewal. Oh, yes, I see that we, we would now like to have information on developmental neurotoxicity. We didn't have a policy on it back then the last time around, but your chemical is in a class that we now deem of concern, so you got to do this, you got to do that. And all the discipline experts in, on both the human health side and the ecological side will, would offer up a list of things that the company companies have to do before they can re-register their technical ingredients depending upon what's asked of them, could take some years. They have to kind of track a chemical and see, okay, OPP is scheduling to put chemical X back in the review cycle in 2009, like glyphosate. I didn't take time to read what the background documents said that were going into the system, so I don't have a good sense of whether or not the office has wanted a whole, any more information. So depending upon how much they wanted and how long it would take to generate it, you could see a decision made in a couple of years or maybe not for five or six years. With everything that happened in 91, and do you feel in hindsight that that was the right thing to do or do you think it was really only the right thing to do at the time with what data you had? What's kind of your final word on glyphosate in 1991? If you could, well, if you could look, give it. looking at, uh, I obviously don't have the raw data in front of me, so I have to assume that the folks wrote this up correctly <laughs> in the peer review memo and in the re-registration eligibility document that summarizes the three studies. I, I see how we got where we did, and I understand the rationale, and I would continue to agree with it. Okay, so you continue to agree with Category E? Yes. 
based upon this data set. So you were feeling when the category E was that it was it was the right thing at the time. Yes. It, or I would have objected. But that was under the kind of under the pretense that it was a pesticide, and it was at no point in that time frame where you was anyone thinking about 180 million pounds a year of it going out. No, because we we back then we had no clue what what would happen with the whole GMO thing, either the herbicide tolerance track which this chemical is part of, or the built-in insecticide track, you know, the BT. The BT toxin, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was BT registered, but it wasn't incorporated into a crop yet. Obviously, they were being worked on, but we just had no clue. I'm trying to think when it was that that division was created. Biopesticide division. It had to be pretty close to all of this because it was all in the works. It, yeah. I mean, there was a reason why Monsanto wanted to get glyphosate squared away in the EPA as soon as it could. And there you have it. Two full takes on the EPA's classification of glyphosate into Group E, meaning that there was clear evidence of non-carcinogenicity back in 1991. You've heard from two experts who were directly in the thick of this back in the day We've gone through a lot of the data between the two different glyphosate podcast episodes here, and now it's about time for me to step back and give you a little bit of GMO truth from a walk a mile project perspective. But we already have a long podcast on our hands here, and with so much more to go, the second part to this really needs its own episode. I did want to make just one podcast that included everything, but it turned out to be way too long for for just one. So I'm splitting it up into two, but I'll be releasing them back to back, so you only have to wait a little bit, certainly less than a week to get our full take on what we just heard from the EPA. So GMO Truth number 12 will be a direct sequel to this. We will pick up exactly where we left off. And that is it for episode number 11. I know it's been a bombshell and your head is probably spinning right now. To that extent, it's probably best that we have this broken into two shows. I do really hate to leave you hanging here without giving our full take though. But stay with me. I'll be back in just a few days with GMO Truth number 12. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please, please tell me. You've been listening to the Walk a Mile Project's GMO Truth Podcast. To stay up to date on new podcasts or learn more and join in on our GMO investigation and upcoming feature film, head over to walkamileproject.com and sign up for free anytime, 24-7. And that is how we discover the truth and change the world together. Dance when you walk through that door.